0: You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series. Assault Studios production. Chemistry. It's all about the chemistry. Well, at least if you want to start a YouTube channel. After being asked by relatives if she could entertain their children during lockdown, Louisa started producing STEM educational videos and social media posts. Even in the early stages of her career and with limited availability, Louisa is finding the time to give back and help the younger generation of students be inspired by STEM. In this episode, Louisa talks about how she found her way in her professional career and why the stigma around maths and science being uncool needs to change. Louisa, it's not too often that you meet a social media influencer with a conscience, but that's you. Talk to me about your YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, so I actually started the YouTube channel STEM at Home, which is also an Instagram TV series at the start of COVID last year. I had a few cousins reach out to me with young kids saying, is there anything that you can suggest to keep our kids entertained at home? Because they're quite bored and we're really struggling with homeschooling. And I thought, well, I know how to make a lava lamp, which is a really weird thing to just know how to make. But I had a really good year 11 chemistry teacher, Mr. Branson, and he taught us how to make a lava lamp. And so I thought, let's record making a lava lamp and I'll put it on YouTube and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, the reaction was so positive. I got so many messages from people on Instagram and LinkedIn saying that their kids loved the episode and am I going to do another one? And I thought, oh no, what have I signed myself up for?
0: Let's talk about your career then. So obviously when you're not spending your entire Saturday and Friday nights uh, recording and preparing for your YouTube channel, you are actually an engineer. Where was your first job within engineering?
1: Yeah, so my first job was at BMD and it was such a good starting point for my career. So they hired me while I was still at university and it was the biggest blessing that ever happened to me. I think up until that point, I struggled to, I guess, connect the theory I was learning with the practical side of things. And then when I started working with BMD, they put me on site straight away. And I started to really understand how what I was learning at university had a practical application, particularly in regards to road construction, which is something that I really enjoy doing, weirdly enough. It's a weird thing to enjoy. And yeah, so all through fourth year, I worked for BMD three days a week and I got to a point where they basically had me as the only engineer on site. And I developed such a great relationship with my site crew and my foreman, his name's Daz, we're still friends. And he became like a second dad to me. And, you know, I don't really like sport and I was the only girl on site. And I sort of thought, how am I going to bond with all of these men? Like, what do we have in common? And then we figured out that we all really liked chocolate. So we used to take it in turns on a Friday to bring in chocolate and sort of did like a chocolate taste testing. And leaving that job was so hard for me. I remember everyone was crying on site. They threw me a going away barbecue and they had got me this massive bunch of flowers. And yeah, I've, I really treasure the time that I spent with my site crew um, working on subdivisions in Anglevale through BMD.
0: Moving on from there, what was your next opportunity?
1: Yeah. So my next opportunity was with a company called Oricon and I was hired as a civil engineer to start with. So I was a civil engineer in their transport team and that was really cool. I got to work with some really amazing civil engineers and I also got to work with geotechnical engineering royalty. So while I was at university, um, I picked the geotechnical engineering electives and in my last year I picked advanced geotechnical engineering. And we had guest speakers come in. So we had Dr. Peter Mitchell and Dr. Matthew Duthie. And these two men are royalty in the world of geotechnical engineering. So Dr. Peter Mitchell came up with the Mitchell method for foundation footing design. And so he's known all over the world. He works for Oricon. So on my first day, they introduced me to everyone. They introduced me to him and I got to sit like opposite him And it was the coolest experience. I can't explain. The next day, I brought in all my colour-coded notes from university to show him how much I enjoyed the course because he came in as a guest lecturer when we did the course in final year.
0: How did he take that?
1: He was so taken back. He's such a modest man and just does not gloat about his achievements or anything like that. Like, he is so well-known in the industry. And actually, while I was working at Oricon, we had his retirement to be able to work with him and work on projects with him. Is something I'll never forget.
0: What did he teach you? Like what was the, the appeal there? He's obviously achieved some great things, but it sounds like it goes just beyond here's someone who's achieved something. It sounds like he's had a real impact on your career.
1: He was just such a hard worker, so positive. Nothing made him upset. Also open to questions. That is something that I really love when someone is open to questions and doesn't shut you down for answering a question. I knew how busy he was and like he's an expert in his field. So if something goes wrong, they call him to ask for advice. So for example, a wall fell down because there was a water mine that was leaking and it undermined the wall when it like fell down. And they called him to come in as the expert to provide advice. And then he was on the news and it was so cool seeing him on the news. And I was like, oh, that's my friend, Peter. Him and Matthew Duthie, so Dr. Matthew Duthie, who worked alongside him and who he actually trained, they were such a dynamic duo. And I just loved working with them both because of how positive they were and how open to questions they were.
0: What did you learn from being around
1: them? How to manage people. I get a lot of questions at the moment in my job from people who are working under me and they'll always start with, I'm so sorry, I don't want to bother you. And I'm like, you're not bothering me. Please ask the question. You know, I wish throughout my career, I had always had someone there that I could ask questions to. And unfortunately, in some roles that I've been in, I didn't have very positive managers and they didn't have time for my questions. And so I felt like that hindered my learning, whereas the fact that I got to work with Dr. Peter and Dr. Matthew and I got to ask them questions whenever I wanted and they were so, I don't know, just so lovely about it. And so they never made me feel like anything was a dumb question, which I think is a really important skill as a leader.
0: Are they still, to your knowledge anyway, still following your career?
1: Yes, they both comment on my LinkedIn posts a lot. And yeah, Matthew's still working in industry. I think he works at GHD now. And yeah, any project that has him on as a geotechnical engineer is a very lucky project.
0: What are sorts of comments they making? They're obviously pretty impressed with where you've gone and what you're doing.
1: I think the most recent comment from Matthew was in regards to an award that I had won from the University of Adelaide You know, a big part of it should be thanks to him because he's one of the reasons why I've had such a successful career to date because he let me ask the questions that I needed to ask.
0: On that note, where are you going with your career? What do you want to look back on in time and say, I did that just like your mentors there?
1: When I was in my last year of uni, I did an interview with the University of Adelaide and they asked me, what's your 10-year goal? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And I said, in 10 years time, I want to be a project manager for large infrastructure projects that's now what I do for a living. I got there a lot faster than I thought I would. And so when people ask me like, where do you see yourself in the future? I'm in my future. (laughs) I'm living what I wanted. And so right now I'm not in any rush to go any higher position wise, any faster. I think I really want to master my craft. They say that, you know, You need 10 years of work experience to become a project manager. And I got there in like three. So I think I've still got a lot of learning to do, and I don't want to move on too fast before I've learned everything that I need to learn. And so before I go into, say, like a senior project manager role or a leadership role, I'd like to just master my craft and spend more time on a variety of projects and then really sort of be someone that people can ask questions to. Because I feel like at the moment, I still need to ask other people questions a lot of the time because I am still quite young. I don't have that lived experience. And something that I really learned from Daz, who was my foreman that I worked with at B&D, you know, he wasn't an engineer, but he knew more than any engineer I've ever worked with because he had like 30 years on site. And so he knew how to build things. And so being able to learn from him was amazing. And so I'd like to just keep cruising, where I am in a professional sense for the time being and just learn what I need to learn before I take any further steps.
0: How important is environmentally sustainable practice for you as an engineer?
1: Very important. And I think in my personal life as well, I have become really into recycling and just really aware of the amount of rubbish I create and it really makes me feel sick. So I'm trying in lots of different ways to fix that. Um, I've got different recycling bins in different rooms of my house, whereas previously I only had one recycling bin, but now I've sort of got one in every room. So I make sure that I'm always consciously recycling, which is a really small thing that we can do. In my career, it is really important as well. I build roads and typically to build roads, we take out trees. So obviously that is not a good thing. And so part of the process that we do in the beginning when we're designing is we try and work out how can we save trees and how can we design around to save trees? We need this infrastructure because, you know, the population is growing and we need to be able to get people places and people want to get there faster. But at the same time, we have to balance that environmental factor And that's something that I am really passionate about and a space that I do definitely want to stay in as well as my career progresses.
0: So how do you do that? How do you plan for the removal of trees?
1: Well, the first rule is try and design out the removal. So work out a way that you can align the road to not have to remove the trees. And sometimes that is possible and sometimes it's not possible. Now, in the cases where it's not possible, Depending on the type of tree, there's certain rules and regulations and in terms of like certain offsetting requirements. So who owns the tree? It might be council owns the tree and it's setting up that initial conversation with council saying, look, this tree needs to be removed because of this project. We want to talk about offsetting. How would you like to offset? Would you like us to give you the money so that you can organise planting or would you like us to do the planting for you? So it's a really conscious conversation that you have really early on in the project Um, But like I said, the first rule is always try and design out the removal if you can. And I've seen heaps of projects where we've realigned the road to save a tree. So it's not something that we don't do. It's something that we look at first and we'll spend a lot of money doing that. But it's worth it, in my opinion.
0: What about some other environmental issues in that space?
1: Materials in construction are not great, like the use of asphalt. And you can even see it when you're on site. So I did about two years of night shift uh, when I was working with Oricon, when we were doing some intersection upgrades. And so I was on site at night and we were pouring the asphalt and I could see like the, I don't know what the right word is, but like the fumes coming off the asphalt as we were pouring it. And I was just thinking, this is not good. This is not good for me breathing this in. This is not good for the environment. There needs to be another way. So there are a lot of companies at the moment who are using like recycled materials. Um, they're sort of, putting recycled materials into asphalt and like there's also green concrete and all that sort of thing so it's definitely something that's being considered in the industry and it's something that we always do so sustainability and design is something that we always have in our design reports it's something that we always look at when we're going through the design process and sort of making suggestions i am working on the design side at the moment in project managing not necessarily in construction so it's kind of like both parties have to come to it. So the design team and the construction team. So the design team can only specify so much. And then the construction team will come in and say, yep, we'll take that recommendation. We'll use that recycled product to make the road better and more environmentally friendly.
0: How would you like to see those processes change for the better?
1: I think there needs to be a massive education overhaul in the construction industry. We're an older industry. I mean, not me, I'm only 25. Um, But we are an older industry, the workforce is older. And so it's about that education piece. I think my generation is really passionate about sustainability and climate change and everything that's happening. And you see it all over the news that it's my generation and my age group that's out there protesting. Not to say there aren't other generations and other age groups, but predominantly it is ours because it's our future. And so we've got an older construction force. So you have to educate them on the importance of Why are we doing this? Why do we want to use recycled materials? Why do we want to reduce our impacts to the earth? They're at the end of their career, whereas we're at the beginning of our career and we want to have a career. We want our kids to be able to have a career. We want our kids and their kids to have an earth to live on. So we need to start making the changes now in order to have the impact by when they're growing up.
0: How can you be a leader in that space then? I mean, this is based on what you're saying there, it's kind of on your shoulders. It's your future and it's the future of your children should you choose to have them and other people and children coming through. So how can you take a leadership role here?
1: Yeah, I think it's getting involved in organisations. So when I was at university, I was a member of the Sustainability Association, which we did really cool activities and fundraisers about raising awareness. And then I made a friend through a government initiative that I've been a part of called Force 40 in South Australia. His name's Ken Long, and he is so big and passionate in this space. And he has the Adelaide Sustainable Building Society. I might have got that wrong, but he's got an organisation that he is a part of. And he recently had me as a guest speaker on one of his panels that he runs. And so he's always running events to, I guess, educate people and educate our generation, but also other generations about climate change and what's happening and where we need to start making changes. We're very late to the party. We should have been making these changes like 20 years ago, but You can't change the past, so it's now up to us to change the future. So, yeah, I think it's about getting involved in organisations like that, focused around sustainability and seeing how you can help as an individual.
0: One other thing, Louisa, that you're very passionate about is changing the perception of STEM. Why does it need to change?
1: I could talk for days about this. So, like I said, when we're talking about my primary school and high school days, it is currently perceived as unpopular, not cool to be smart. And my personal opinion is the reason for that is what we see in TV shows and movies. So a really good example is the show Modern Family. Have you seen that show?
0: I don't watch it. I do know of it, of course.
1: In the show, there are two sisters, Haley and Alex, the Dunphy sisters, and they play very opposite characters. So Hayley is the older sister and she has lots of friends. She's super social. She loves getting her hair, makeup, nails, et cetera, done. Alex is the younger sister. She very much cares about her education. She gets very good grades and the show perceives her as a nerd and they sort of make comments like there's an episode where she says she has a boyfriend but nobody believes that she could get a boyfriend and it's kind of like a running joke and then she doesn't really have friends and so there's all episodes around that and they sort of create this divide between, well, you can be popular and you can have friends and you can be social or you can be smart you can't have both. And it's in so many different TV shows and movies. So like the movie Mean Girls, at the start Cady's really smart and then as she sort of becomes popular, she starts doing really bad in maths and fails, etc. Personally, I think that it's there particularly for women that, you know, you can only be one thing. You can't be smart and you can't be into makeup at the same time because those two things don't go together, so you can't be both. So that's what I'm trying to change. And I think I've been doing it for a long time, past five years, by myself going into schools and talking to kids and talking about my journey. And obviously, I really like makeup. I've got a lot on at the moment. I really like fashion. I am into everything, hair, makeup, nails, you name it. I like it. I love reality TV as well. I also like going out, socialising, all that sort of thing. But I also really do like math and science. And I like being an engineer and I'm passionate about engineering. I'm doing everything, so why can't you do everything? So that's what I'm super passionate about. And through the STEM at Home, What Do You Do series, I'm showcasing real faces of engineering and also science, technology and maths around the world. Yes, there are males in the series because I didn't want the series to be just females because I do also want to encourage younger males to pursue STEM. I think everybody should pursue STEM. But there are more females in the series than males and the reason is I want to encourage other girls to pursue a career in STEM.
0: Are you seeing other girls come through?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely changing. I think, so when I was in year 12, in my physics class, there was two of us. So me and my friend Georgina. And then in my specialist maths class, there was three of us, me, my friend Georgina and a girl called Jess. All three of us became engineers, by the way. So that's what I saw when I was in year 12. In recent years, when I've gone back to my high school to speak, the class numbers have definitely increased because there has been a bigger push for women in STEM, But I still think there's a long way to go. So I spoke on a panel for Engineers Australia for International Women in Engineering Day last year. And I spoke with two CEOs. They were the other two speakers. So Todd Bately from ACOM and Benita Husband from Pit and Cherry. And I mentioned in my speech that on my first day of university, I went to my first maths lecture and there was about 300 boys in that lecture theatre and 30 girls. And Benita and Todd, who had both gone to university maybe 15 to 20 years before me, had the same ratio in their lectures. While things are changing, I don't think it's changing fast enough and I think we need to be doing more. And I do think that potentially some organisations target the wrong age group So they'll go and do STEM outreach and they'll talk to years 10s, 11s and 12s. You don't really need to talk to 10, 11 and 12s like you do, but you don't because they've sort of already decided where they want to go. They've had to pick their subjects. It's about talking to younger students. It's about talking to primary school students about STEM and planting that seed from a really young age that they are excited about maths and science and they don't think it's something that's uncool, unpopular, but it's something that's going to change their life and open them up to so many different career opportunities.
0: In terms of those young students coming through, what's your advice around the most desirable skill sets to have in terms of employability?
1: Yeah, I guess soft skills are really important. So technical skills, you know, if you've done an engineering degree and you've graduated from an engineering degree, you'll have those technical skills. Everybody learned the same thing. You know, you might've got a better grade, but that just might mean how you perform in an exam. So in a three hour exam, that's worth 80% of your grade, you might perform better than somebody else. It doesn't mean that that other person didn't learn the same technical knowledge and technical skills, but soft skills are so important. So especially at the moment, we are doing all our meetings remotely over teams. And so you need to sort of be able to speak in a meeting and feel confident to speak. At the same time, like I mentioned earlier, teamwork. Teamwork is such an important skill in being able to work in a team. And at the moment, it's even harder because we're working remotely. So to be able to still, I guess, make the effort to make contact with your team and touch base with your team while you're all at such a distance is really important. Another skill that I think is really important is emotional intelligence And being able to read a situation. I've worked with a lot of leaders who don't have emotional intelligence and say things that they probably shouldn't have said, but they can't gauge how what they're saying is being taken by someone else. I feel like I've got quite a high level of emotional intelligence. And I know that I do because it's the the area that I scored the highest in the UMAT and all the other areas I didn't score very well. And I think that's something that I'm really good at, being able to read a situation and read how people are feeling and be careful to say certain things when someone's not having a very good day and just be the best team player that I can be.
0: Louisa, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you very much for sharing some time with us.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Role models come in different forms. For many young kids, it's sports stars, but while following an athlete's career is fine, it doesn't really help you excel during your education. That's why Louisa is a role model and proud advocate for STEM. She aims to give students with an interest in maths and science someone to look up to and learn from. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series,
1: Assault Studios production.